0: Good afternoon, everybody.
1: Can you hear me? Okay, good. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, whether you're here in person or you're with us on Zoom. Uh, You're in for a real treat today. Before I speak to you about our really very special speaker, um, I wanna say a few words about about this event, the Alumni in Residence Program. Um, This is a program that was started about 30 years ago, so it's been going on for a long time. It was designed to bring back to campus some of our most exceptional graduates, and it's done just that during their visits alumni and residents meet with students and faculty they visit classrooms and give presentations sharing their experiences and wisdom and insight it's valuable for all of you to hear from our alumni about how they have created exceptional careers for themselves and it's also been my experience at least that it that it's valuable for the alumni to find themselves back on campus and see how we as a law school have kind of grown up too. Um, And we hope that it is a rewarding day for all. Over the last three decades, the Alumni in Residence Program has brought back alumni who are leaders in nearly every aspect of the legal field and beyond. And this year is no different. Damian Granderson graduated from Albany Law School in 2003. That makes him one of, if not, the youngest alumnus in residence that we've ever had. And while his professional career is relatively short, his list of accomplishments reads like that of someone with a much longer career. Damien began his career working for for other firms before becoming the founding partner of Granderson de Rocher's LLP. Damien has made a name for himself in an industry, industry full of recognizable names. Throughout his career, he has represented some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry. He served as counsel and handled transactions for Nicki Minaj, Zendaya, ASAP Rocky, J. Cole, Wizkid, J Balvin, among others. And I know all of those (laughs) artists. (laughs) Maybe not, but. Beyond the impressive list of clients, Damian has collected an impressive list of accolades. He's been named to Billboard's Top Music Lawyers and Change Agents list, the Hollywood Reporter's Top Music Lawyers list, and Variety's Dealmakers Impact Report, and the Legal Impact Report. His outstanding work goes beyond legal practice. Damian is an active board member of the Black Music Action Coalition, BMAC is an advocacy organization that is tackling systemic racism within the music business. He's also a trustee at the Center for Early Education. In a moment, Damien will share with you his talk entitled "How I Got Here." And I know from my conversations with him that it wasn't always easy. There's a lot of of trying and failing um, that that we learn about from our alumnus, our alumni in residence. And that's an important part of the message. Um, It's also part of the story is about being at Albany Law School. Um, And I hope that we'll hear some of that. So I wanna really uh, thank Damien for taking the time to fly across the country uh, and spend a, a couple of days sharing his story and his expertise with our students, our staff and our faculty and all of the Albany Law School community. And I hope that this is one of many return trips to Albany for you. We'll make sure you get some of that Cardono's Deli that you've been missing. <laughs> it is my great pleasure to welcome our alum,
0: alumnus and residents, Damian Granderson, class of 2023. Thank you.
2: thank you everyone. And thank you for the warm welcome. Dean let faculty, students, administration and others that have welcomed me here. I had quite an eventful morning. I traveled in from Los Angeles last night and have been stacked with wonderful meetings to engage with faculty and students. And it's interesting and exciting to me because I'm seeing a lot more students now interested in entertainment and music law. When I was uh, at Albany Law School I don't think there were many that shared the same passion and interest in entertainment and music. Uh, I was one of the few that actually chose that course as a professional career, in my class of 2003, uh, but it has been rewarding along the way, but also challenging. Uh, Albany Law School is a special place. I mean, when I think back to my time here and as I toured the campus this morning with Tina and Ty walking me around. There was uh, some very profound memories that I had in studying in the library. The, certainly, the table next to the window with the light was something that I rushed every morning to get to, so that I could, you know, pretty much make my station for the day when I'm when I'm preparing for class and reading. Uh, that that was certainly a good memory. Uh, meeting up with professors, Professor Heverly, who we've been speaking with uh, over the past couple of days, well, the past couple of weeks in preparation for his entertainment law class. I'm really looking forward to that and meeting the students in that class, but also Professor Armstrong, who uh, was my civil procedure teacher and also my legal writing teacher. And it was nice to reconnect with her and Professor Moore. And it's just been nice to just get back on campus and just reconnect with the community. I still find that it's still a close knit community to the faculty, the students, although it's competitive, it's not, the horror stories that you'd hear at other universities with students ripping pages out of uh, treatises and other publications in the library uh, to disadvantage other students, I still find that there's still that connection of people looking to support each other uh, and connect with each other for the greater good. Now Albany Law School uh, has had a profound impact on my life and it's a pleasure to be here today as an alumni in residence. Uh, given that there's been such prestigious alumni that have been a part of this institution, starting with William McKinley, uh, the 25th president of the United States, Robert H. Jackson, the uh, justice from the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Kate Stoneman, the first alumna and first female admitted to the New York State Bar, and also Richard Parsons, who is the chairman of Citigroup and AOL Time Warner in addition to many other alumni that have used the opportunity afforded them here at Albany Law School to make a difference, to impact the legal, business, and education uh, communities at large. So I find this to be a tremendous honor uh, to be acknowledged and to just return to campus here. As I was strolling throughout the campus earlier this morning and meeting with the students, uh, over the past week, I took the time to just look at the mission statement to reconnect to the spirit of the law school. And I don't know how many students here have the free time, you know, to just, I don't know, stroll on the website or, or look through <laughs> the, the Albany Law School mission statement, but it's true. It was true when I was here and it's uh, more evident today. And the mission statement reads Albany Law School educates and empowers tomorrow's leaders, engaged professionals, committed public servants, inspiring community change agents, and creative problem solvers. Now, how many students here would consider themselves or at law school to become tomorrow's leaders? A show of hands.
0: Is that it? How do you intend to be tomorrow's leader with the education that you will receive here at Albany Law School? Great answer.
2: Thank you. Anyone here at law school by show of hands here to become an engaged professional?
0: (laughs) Gentleman in the back. How do you intend to become an engaged professional? I'll use the the mic so everyone can hear me. Yes, I haven't really thought about this, but just continue to learn and grow
2: in spaces that I am lacking in and continue to develop my, um, my social awareness and my uh, public speaking skills as well uh, so that I could be more effective to, uh, in the future. Amazing answer. Thank you. Anyone here to become a committed public
0: servant? I'm assuming the question is, how do I see that?
2: How do you see that? Okay,
0: so what I intend outside of
1: creating financial wealth for myself so I can have the comfort and the freedom to be a committed public servant, I intend to go into civil rights and to give back to my people, especially native residents of Brooklyn, New York. Okay. I intend to take this education and serve them and teach them things that are not usually in our areas, or our communities.
2: Yeah. Excellent answer. Thank you. How about inspiring, is there anyone here looking to become a community change agent by show of hands? Don't get shy now, come on.
0: Community change agent. Um, Well, for me, I plan to get into like different forms of property law, but specifically real estate to target like discrimination in housing, Um, finding creative ways around that, especially for underdeveloped neighborhoods. Like, well, science from Brooklyn, but I'm from the Bronx. So similar sentiment. And anyone here to become a creative problem solver?
2: How do you see yourself being a creative problem solver?
0: Um, just kind of
1: working. Obviously we have the rules that we have to stick to, but law really only sees progress when people are willing to go outside the restrictions of those rules, obviously within their limits. But you know, to kind of take um, an initiative to go beyond that, and that's the only way that the law is going to change so it takes someone willing to go beyond you know the previous rules but i see myself as using what i have here to kind of set a baseline and then cast a net to see where i can go outside of that within the range and to try to make some creative change so that people after me have more options that they have at their disposal as law as all precedent so set a creative precedent maybe Somebody will follow it
2: and take it further. That's the goal. Thank you. Any other creative problem solvers in attendance? Let me ask this. Anyone here that have an interest in entertainment law, music law? Okay. So I will say my approach to deal making and the approach of so many other entertainment and music lawyers is to be effectively a problem solver. So in addition to advocating for your client's best interests, a deal is essentially trying to creatively solve a problem, right? That benefit your client and may also benefit the opposing side. Because if you just have a one-sided deal, those often don't work out in the favor of, of either party, okay? And talking about my journey or thinking about my journey in entertainment law to become a music lawyer and first-generation lawyer in my family, uh, I think it's important to, have a, to really know your why, right? know why you're doing what you're doing, know your purpose, know your cause, know your beliefs right, and stay true to that because throughout your journey, whether it's as a 1L, 2L, 3L, or even after you graduate, take the bar and embark upon your professional career, you're gonna be tested because it's a grind. And so long as you know your why, that will push you through. That will push you through adversity and failures that you will inevitably face. If you know your why, it will provide you with the passion, the drive to get through your obstacle. So when we leave here today, I'd like you to just reflect when you're in some very tough times as I was on my journey, but my
0: why kept pushing me through.
2: So how I got here, Um, these photos, uh, most of them are courtesy of my mom who actually keeps every little thing, uh, whether it's photos, uh, just other items as I grew up. And, you know, She's very proud of that I'm here today, and actually was thrilled to pull some of these photos and other items that I can use for this presentation. So my background: my parents were are from Trinidad and Tobago, which is a small island in the West Indies, and they migrated to United States and New York in the 1970s. I was born in 1977. I have an older sister, Donna Russell, who's based in uh, Oberlin, Ohio, and she works at Oberlin College. And our parents, my parents really instilled at an early age uh, discipline, education, hard work, and integrity. That's something that's critical to, I believe, my success and something that they not only instilled in my sister and I, but something that they demonstrated on a daily basis. My mom was an administrative assistant for three heads of thoracic at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And the sense of pride that she had for work unfounded. I don't think you can find someone like my mom, okay? She would get to work two hours before she needed to. Wake up 4.30 in the morning, commute into Manhattan to be there so that she was able to perform at the highest level at her job. My father learned a trade in Trinidad, auto body repair he had the same hard work ethic and discipline. And just by seeing that, I mean, growing up, my sister and I would watch our parents work this hard. and we're like, why do you feel you have to get to work that early? Why are you working so hard? And here I am, fast forward 20 years later, who's waking up at five o'clock every morning? You know, who wants to be the first at the office, stays late until the work gets done. Uh, So that's something that I hold true to this day. And it's thanks to my parents. My dad's in that, Fancy suit in the middle there, Errol, my mom. She picked this photo, of course, it one of her favorites of herself. <laughs> <laughs> my mom there is in the middle, my sister to the right, Donna, and that's me, my James Bond tuxedo there. <laughs> so, I was born in Flatbush, Brooklyn. I was, grew up in Uniondale, Long Island. I had a really, really lovely childhood growing up. I had really, you know, uh, three passions. My main passion was basketball. I loved basketball. Thank goodness I was so committed to the sport because I think it kept me out of a lot of trouble uh, growing up. Uh, My second passion was music. For as far back as I can remember, music was always playing throughout my household. Uh, I always loved hip hop music. My parents, uh, by virtue of our culture of West Indian, we always listened to soca, calypso, reggae. Uh, My grandmother was a big country music fan. And somehow was, I grew up liking Kenny Rogers. I don't know how that really made its way to, <laughs> to Trinidad, but it did. She loved Kenny Rogers. I know every Kenny Rogers song, thanks to her. Uh, but it, it was really eclectic in terms of valuing music, songwriting, and also the arts. That was also something that I was really interested in early on. I also had a passion for business. Early on, I think I was maybe 10 years old, I had my first paper route. And my mom of course saved my very first dollar earned from that penny saver, 1984. So it's also my first failed business. I had like two paper routes. I had friends that I wanted to hang out with but I somehow convinced them to work for me. My mom made me keep a budget. So like when I was using her car to to do the the paper route when she'd drive around, she made me pay for gas. You know? <laughs> and somehow at the end of the day, that's probably a dollar is all I ended up with. So, <laughs> So, uh, after, I, after I went to high school, I attended Sacred Heart University for two years. I played basketball there. That was short-lived because I had more assists for passing the towel down the bench and the water bottles down the bench than actually playing. So, I soon realized My passion and desire to one day play basketball at a professional level was definitely not it. I transferred to Stony Brook University and pursued and completed a business BS in business management. And as I was in my last year at Stony Brook, going out, doing interviews, and during those interviews, I'm interviewing to become maybe a stockbroker, to sell insurance, business-related jobs. And like reality hit me that, wow, I was actually interviewing for what my life would be, what my profession would be. And none of the jobs that I was interviewing for actually were connected to me in a very passionate way. There was nothing that I saw that I was, when I was having these interviews that I could envision me spending the rest of my life doing. So what I decided to do, find a way to stall and delay the inevitable growing up, right? Although I have never met a lawyer at that time in my life, never met a lawyer, didn't really know what lawyers did aside from what was portrayed in television shows, movies and books, I had the bright idea to go to law school. The problem is I missed all the admissions deadlines and stuff like that. So I had to take a year off from in between undergrad and law school. And I fortunately was able to get a job at a, a rather large a law firm called Feel and Read and Priest as a litigation legal assistant, because how I envisioned being a lawyer was going to court, advocating for the underdog and and really beating up the big corporations and sticking up and advocating for artists' rights. When I was actually working at this big firm, I noticed that 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 wasn't really the reality of the litigation group. Uh, A lot of the younger associates, you know, put in the hours, put in the time, and would never see their days in court. So a lot of the partners would never really spend time in court. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm deterring anybody from pursuing a litigation career. I'm sure that's fine, but wasn't my cup of tea. While I was at Thiel and Reed and Priest, however, I had the opportunity to meet three entertainment attorneys. And those three entertainment attorneys had the best personality. They were dynamic. And one of them was actually a music lawyer. And that's when the light bulb went off. That's when I realized, wow, there were actually lawyers that advocated for artists and songwriters that I've admired my entire career. So as I was able to work on a few projects with these lawyers and I realized, oh, the contracts are what controls the rights. And this is who these artists call, not to mention they were pretty dynamic, those attorneys and their lifestyles I admired a great deal at that point. I decided that I would pursue a career in music and entertainment law. So when I, is Professor Armstrong here now? Because I think she'll get a trip out of this picture. I had lunch with her. <laughs> okay, great. But um, so when I came to Albany Law School, I, I was very focused and determined on becoming a music and entertainment attorney. Um, obviously, you know, the first, the first year, what do they say? Is the saying still true? They scare you to death. So does anyone, does anyone hear that saying or is I, am I completely dating myself? Am I dating myself or is that still true? That still holds true? Okay, so I'll give you an example of how uh, it scared me to death. So this is like maybe the first week of law school where they provide you with a packet. It's supposed to, I guess, be, from what I thought, orientation. So you're going in there. There's an auditorium full of students. They have their materials. You're supposed to read the materials and be prepared the next day. Of course, I didn't read it. And I'm sitting in the back of the class And two rows in front of me, is a student named Thomas Kernan, who was probably the number one or two ranked student in our class, truly brilliant. I'm sure he wasn't the first generation attorney. I'm sure like, he knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, I feel like first year, he could have went out and practiced law and he would have been like, he was brilliant. And the, you know, of course what happens, Dean Moore, who was a torts professor, called on Thomas. And that was the first time I actually had the opportunity to witness the Socratic method of teaching. Boy, was I scared. I had a fear of public speaking, wasn't my comfort zone, and I was unprepared. So here he goes getting peppered by Dean Moore, briefing the case, and he's nailing it. He is nailing it. And I'm sitting there like wondering, what am I going to do to get out of here? Because she's calling on other people as well. Like, do I get up and like go to the bathroom? No, I'm gonna, make it, I'm gonna make a spectacle of myself. I'm definitely gonna get cold on. So I'm just shrinking in my chair, right? Totally scared. So that's one example of how I was scared to death, right? The second example of how I was scared to death that kind of relates more to my career path was after first year, we started going on interviews, uh, you know, for 1L Associates uh, position at law firms. I was applying to a ton of jobs And I actually had an opportunity to interview with a rather large law firm that had a smaller uh, entertainment and music practice. And when I went to the interview, met with a bunch of other groups, litigation group, property group, and then they squeezed in for me an opportunity to, to interview with an associate in the music group, provided him with my resume. I did okay. I wasn't you know, top 10% of the class was on law review. My grades were solid enough. I was feeling good about myself, provided him with my resume. And he must've looked at it for 10 seconds, threw it back in my face and said, listen, if you really are passionate about pursuing a career in entertainment law, your resume needs to scream that you will live and die by, by your choice to be a music lawyer. I'm like, I'm like sitting here and I'm like, just gut punch. There's nothing on your resume that shows me that you have an interest outside of the fact that you're saying that you want to be an entertainment lawyer, a music lawyer. I see Albany Law Review, I see you have a decent GPA, but there's nothing here from our applicant pool that includes Ivy League schools, top 10% students there that would pay for a position to be here, okay? There's nothing here on your resume that would make me want to hire you. And I went home heartbroken, crushed. Of course, pick up the phone, I call my mom, I tell her what happened. And my parents have been supportive throughout my entire journey. They've been amazing. She, they tell me to use that as constructive criticism, right? To take that feedback, flip it around and execute. Do exactly what he's saying you need to do. Ironically enough, that, that associate, his name is David Kokakis. He's actually the head of business affairs at Universal Music Publishing. We do a ton of deals together to this day. And I reminded him of this story. And I, he claims that he doesn't, he, he vaguely remembers. He's like, I wasn't that mean, I was being helpful. I said, no, you were a jerk. Believe me, like <laughs> you were a complete jerk. But thank you, thank you. So what I did in that second year of law school, I joined every organization I could that had anything entertainment related. You know, obviously it was on Law Review, but I joined the Black Entertainment Sports Lawyers Association. I joined the ABA Sports uh, and Entertainment Law Forum. I joined the New York uh, Volunteer for the Arts. Whatever I could do to have my resume scream, this is where I want to be. This is a profession and career path that I'm dedicated to at all costs, is what I did. But in addition to that, I was able to work for a small firm here in Albany, Joanne Casey, uh, who's been amazing throughout this whole time and been amazing to the current students because there's been a, a number of them that have reached out to me <laughs> over the years. Uh, but she, uh, she allowed me to work, I, I had this job working with this, uh, this lawyer who was essentially Liberty Mutual Insurance's in-house counsel. And while I was there, I also started applying to boutique law firms and music, record companies. At the time, they had this uh, periodical called the A&R Music Registry. And in the A&R Music Registry, they had a list of every single record company, every single boutique uh, law firm, and the lawyers at each record company. So what did I do? I just sent so many, just so many cover letters and resumes applying to jobs. And at that time, was my first real, real experience with rejection. In fact, I think my mom and dad at my house in Long, at their house in Long Island, have a a box full of rejection letters that I that I chose to keep. Like there's a box full of rejection letters because I applied to every single law firm, every single record company, and it just I just wasn't good enough. It just never got the opportunity to uh, to work there until I had. I finally had a return email from Mark Robinson, who was the head of business affairs at Koch Entertainment, which at the time was the number one independent record company and distributor. And what Mark offered me was essentially an offer I couldn't refuse. Bless you. He asked, he said he would provide me with an internship, a free internship, if I would commute three hours down from Albany to New York at Koch Entertainment. And he said, what I would do for you is you'll be able to shadow me as I negotiate deals, but more importantly, I will provide you with the contracts that I negotiate and allow you to summarize those contracts, thereby learning what the, what the moving terms are, learning what the moving parts to the deal was. So I said, hey, that, that sounds great, but can you at least pay for my gas fare, train, anything? No, we don't offer any compensation, which probably is illegal, but sorry, Mark, if I'm blowing you up. But, <laughs> but you know, it, 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 it was an opportunity for me, but it also, under the circumstances, I had to really figure out a way for it to work. And in order for it to work, I was able to have another job at a very notable firm here, Hiscock and Barclay, I believe the name changed, but I essentially had two jobs that summer. From Monday to Wednesday, I worked at His- Hiscock and Barclay as a law clerk, They paid me, they were fantastic. I worked in, you know, I had litigation, I had exposure to the litigation group, the property group. It was amazing, They, they were awesome. But again, it wasn't my passion. I found my passion when I drove down to the city and interned at Koch Entertainment. It was like, I don't know, it was like Disney World to me. You know, it was seeing the dynamic of Mark negotiates, the dynamic of the artists coming in and out, and learning the business behind the contracts is something that I think has have served me well as a talent lawyer today. Uh, So while I was while I was there, I then went into my third year of law school. I continued on at Hiscock and Barclay and couldn't really continue on on a full time or even part time basis with Koch, but I would still stay in touch, come back and forth with uh,
0: I'd go back and
2: forth uh, when, when time was available to go down and summarize some things, some contracts for Mark. And it was a tremendous experience. But during my last year of law school was when, you know, they say they, uh, they bore you to death, right? Well, here I wasn't bored. I was more like anxious to figure out how I was going to get in. Because of course, Koch didn't have an opportunity for me at the time. To hire me after after uh, law school, and I was so hell bent on getting into the entertainment and music industry that I, you know, that I just I, I had an offer to work at a pretty notable firm here in Albany, but it wasn't in the area of my choice, and I decided to pass on that offer against my parents' wishes, and, and relocate back to the city and try to make my way. The only opportunity that I was able to really secure when I came back to the city was uh, as an unpaid intern at Def Gem Records in the lifestyle marketing department. Not in the business affairs department, not in the business department, but in the lifestyle marketing department. I had no lawyers. I don't even think they had college graduates. What I was essentially doing at Def Jam was making cold calls to local DJs, regional DJs, college DJs to basically make them aware of what the upcoming releases would be for Def Jam. And that wasn't for a long time because within six months there was a corporate shakeup and Leo Cohen left with the Thomas Lee Partners to acquire Warner Music Group. He was the chairman and CEO at the time that I was there. And L.A. Reid came in and there I was. Now, my plan didn't work out. I wasn't able to parlay my my position as an intern in the Lifestyle Department to the Business Affairs Department. I was actually back home trying to figure it out. And what I did was the relationships that I made throughout my time of outreach and rejection, I continued sending back out those cover letters and resumes. Part of a large part of this presentation, you're going to hear about a lot of rejection, a lot of adversity, because that's what it takes. If, if you really have a desire to pursue a career in music and entertainment law, it's, it's a very niche area of law, very challenging, very competitive and very difficult to get into. But um, as I did the rounds, I was very fortunate because Mark Robinson had then accepted a position to take over as the head of business affairs at Warner Music Group and he was leaving Koch. So what I did when he left, is he offered me a position as a junior attorney at Koch. And they had a more senior attorney come in at the same time. And he wanted me there because I had more institutional knowledge than this new lawyer. Not legal knowledge, but institutional knowledge. And I worked my tail off. I think I must have done over 300 deals when I was at Koch. And although my desire was always to essentially work on the talent side, that was really my first job and opportunity. Um, here's, a, here's a picture I forgot to mention. When, after I spoke with David Okakis, I joined the negotiation team and went all in on negotiation, mediation. This is a photograph of Albert Berry, who was in my class, myself, when we won the Donna Joe Morse Negotiation Championship. Thank you Professor Moore. <laughs> And this is uh, graduation day, May 2003, Dean Guernsey. My parents, they couldn't be happier, my sister. And here's uh, just, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Koch Entertainment, but at the time, Koch was, at least that's what they said, Koch was the leading independent record company and distributor. And when I was there, what that really meant was they had a large volume of transactions because Koch, the the place that that company essentially played in the greater music and record industry was that was the label that artists went to when they weren't ripe enough to get signed by a major. So most of you may have heard of Atlantic Records, obviously Def Jam Records, Interscope Records, Warner Music Group. Those are the majors, those are the big boys. Those are like the great legendary record companies. Koch was the record company that if those companies weren't interested, meaning that if, if you weren't ripe enough or didn't have enough momentum or interest, you'd sign to Koch, right? Or if you were at one of those major record companies, you would get dropped from the major record company and Koch would sign you. So that's kind of where I cut my teeth. And the types of deals that I did there, which it's, it's amazing, because to really distinguish themselves from their competitors, Koch really had a different type of deal structure. It was primarily this hybrid distribution type of deals, not to get too focused on the types of deals, but I just think it's interesting because those are the types of deals that are really prevalent today. Like where artists are controlling and owning their recordings, and instead of signing away all of their rights and receiving a royalty, they're now in a position where they can negotiate a profit share or a, a distribution deal, which is more favorable. So. Doing Starting out my career as an in-house lawyer at Koch Entertainment One, which later acquired Koch while I was there, uh, really cut my teeth on understanding the business and those structures so that now when I'm representing talent, I'm at an an advantage in in any negotiation. I essentially can finish the sentence that the in-house lawyer at any record company is going to say or give them points that they can bring to their senior executives so that that point that's really important for my client will make sense for them. Again, more like a problem solving strategic approach. E1, all those were companies under Koch. So as I was at Koch working feverishly to close deals, uh, I started to develop like anxiety because I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't where I really wanna be. I really want to work in private practice. The whole reason for me getting into music and entertainment law was to represent talent and protect talent in their transactions with record companies and with third parties. I worked really hard at Koch and fortunately was able to negotiate against lots of attorneys in the business. In fact, that was also a really good learning tool for me because by negotiating against so many different lawyers in the business, you kind of, you have a sampling of what's effective and what's ineffective in terms of approach, in terms of style. And I was fortunate to negotiate against Fred Davis, who was Clive Davis's first son. who was the founder of Davis Shapiro, Lewin Hayes at the time, and Steve Shapiro, who also co-founded the firm. Uh, and also my current partner, Guy Blake. Uh, and it was a really spirited negotiations. We really had great respect and have great respect for each other during those negotiations and based upon those interactions, uh, I was offered an associate position at Davis, Shapiro, Lewin, Hayes at the time. So here I am, super excited, 2007. I have an offer, an opportunity to work with one of the hottest music firms in the business. Uh, At the time, Fred Davis was transitioning his practice from, I mean, he was Black Eyed Peas, Britney Spears. He was like the top music lawyer, really focused on pop genre. And he pivoted because he felt the need to take on new challenges and saw the post-Napster era, era as an opportunity to be creative, to be innovative. So instead of pushing back like the record industry did on downloads and what would, what would end up being streaming, Fred embraced all of these outsiders. And I remember at the firm him bringing in Daniel Ek to provide a presentation on how important streaming would be in the next 10 years. I'd be lying to you if I believed them, like when when it was there, you know what I mean? It was one of these things I'm like, so people aren't gonna want a physical CD to look on the back of the liner notes and know where, like who the producer was on the record, where it was recorded, and here we are today. All that information is available on your, you know, your iPhone or your personal devices. Uh, The David Shapiro experience was was a a great one. And I was fortunate enough to meet with a number of students uh, early in the day. And they always, they were asking me like, You know, so when you start working the firm, what is the way that you can use to separate yourself or to stand out? And I I can just recall, you know, the hard work, the discipline that was instilled in me by my parents and just the reality of observing the fun parts of the business as a practitioner, as an entertainment lawyer, the not too fun parts. So what I did, when I I was at David Shapiro, I looked at the senior partners and I observed what parts of their job did they really enjoy? What parts of their job did they not enjoy? And I made a really calculated decision that my clients wouldn't only be the clients that were outside of the firm for deals that we would service for the senior partners, but also the senior partners. In other words, If there was a a senior partner that enjoyed when the big deal was ready to get signed and presenting to the client, I'd make sure that that senior partner was there for that moment and brief that partner so that they presented to the client because that made them feel good. If there was an opportunity to provide a presentation for an opportunity to represent a new client, I made sure they were a part of that. All the other stuff, all the headaches, the daily maintenance, the the, challenging phone
0: calls, I took care of it.
2: So I actually, an opportunity came when, cause I started in the New York office at Davis Shapiro. And there was an opportunity after I started a family with my wife, Danielle, here's a picture of, my wife, Danielle, our oldest daughter, Coco, our eight-year-old, Celine, and my youngest daughter, Kaya, uh, they actually wanted us to recreate our wedding because they weren't there on our wedding day. Go figure, right? Okay. So, so we, we renewed our vows last, last year in, in our backyard and so that they can partake in the, uh, in the activity. But as I was there in the New York office, my wife and I were looking to start a family. And... She basically said, we're moving to LA. I said, okay, honey. So so it was like, before I even moved there, I was pretty much spending a lot of time in LA because the business was so challenging at that time, post-Nabster, that you had to find other ways to add value to clients. So in addition to doing record deals and publishing deals that were now, the size of those deals weren't as considerable as they were in the past. You had to find ways to find brand and endorsements clients that were multi-hyphenate that weren't just songwriters or recording artists who had an interest in fashion. They also wanted to act. They also had business acumen and had entrepreneurial spirits. So those were, those were, you know, spending time in LA where it's heavily concentrated with people in that area, particularly folks that work behind the scenes there. I found it to be very beneficial at that point in my career to start traveling back and forth from New York to LA and we ultimately decided to move to start our family, and it was a great a great move because by being in LA, it allowed me to have the opportunity to take on more of a leadership role in the Los Angeles office of Davis Shapiro, and after joining the firm in 2007, I became a senior partner in 2012 uh, because there was, some, there was a shakeup in the, in the management uh, at Davis Shapiro. And one of the partners, managing partner, actually, in LA office was expelled and allowed for me and and my other partner, Guy Blake, Jeff Levin, Richard Grable, to uh, become senior partners there. And Guy Blake and I were essentially, it was Guy Blake, myself, and like a potted plant. And we went about it really in terms of building up that office in a very methodical way. We we coined it like the no a-hole policy. So we were looking for lawyers that, shared in our passion for the arts. And we're hard workers and we work in a really collaborative fashion. As you start working at law firms, you'll see every law firm kind of has a different approach. Uh, but what's consistent across most law firms, it's a siloed approach. So there'll be one senior partner, he, works with, he or she works with a few associates and they're part, even though they're part of the firm, it's more like they're sharing rent. There's not much collaboration unless it's a legal question here and there. Uh, my approach has been different for the, for, during the course of my career. I've always tried to find lawyers that were more skilled or smarter than me in areas that I, I felt like I could use. And Guy Blake, for instance, he's, uh, he's been my partner for 15 years in the practice of law. Prior to that, he was like head of business affairs at, music public, uh, at Warner Chapel Music Publishing. I think I know publishing really well. I think I'm a pretty good publishing lawyer. He's a really good publishing lawyer. a really good, really good publishing lawyer. So the dynamic that we have as a firm in that LA office at the time was one where instead of just having one lawyer work on an account uh, or two lawyers work on an account for a client, we'd have a team of lawyers based on the needs for the client. And then I started seeing, wow, this is being really well received by the clients that we're working on. You know, they're really enjoying the dynamic of having an expert come in for fashion, an expert come in for endorsements and sponsorships, an expert opine on a publishing contract or, my bread and butter, uh, overall strategy or distribution deal, license deal, uh, or a structure, you know, uh, pertaining to corporate and entertainment finance. We also were able to bring in a corporate lawyer and left Big Law because he really shared in the vision of what we are doing in the LA office. Uh, In July of 2019, after really looking at where we were as a unit in the LA office of of Davis Shapiro, Lewick Randerson and Blake, we then started to think about new challenges, new opportunities, and felt that it was the right time to create create a firm that really embodied our own vision. I started seeing clients of mine like ASAP Rocky or at the time Cardi B, uh, Neo, that really started not only having an interest in recording and songwriting, but also acting producing, directing films and music videos, wanting to own their own fashion lines. So from people that I met early on in my journey, and it's really cool to say, people that I met as I was in law school and I met through Beesler conferences or through ABA conferences, we've managed to keep in touch. We've managed to refer business to one another and, res- and build upon a real rhythm and respect and when it came time to start our own firm, we all had alignment in terms of the vision where it really is an honor to represent clients that are multi-hyphenate and it's our responsibility to super service their needs and their objectives. That's where the idea of Randerson Deroche came from. We started to see that we needed an expert in new media and uh, technology and that's Elizabeth Moody at the top to the right. She, uh, she worked closely with Fred Davis when they were doing deals to legitimize digital service providers like Spotify. Uh, she is creating the law and new media and technology and just doing a great job. I learned something new from her every time uh, we have a conversation. André Derrache next to her, he's a TV film lawyer, has a similar story as, as, as my own. He left big law to then work at a boutique, took a substantial pay, pay cut, to work at a boutique TV production firm. He's now one of the top TV film lawyers representing talent and and some really notable production companies. And I thought he would be great. This is Guy Blake in the upper left-hand corner. And, you know, we have 20 lawyers today between New York and LA. I'm based in Los Angeles. And it's truly like a pleasure and an honor every day I go to work. I mean, I really like, when people say, how are you doing? I say, I'm living the dream all the time. And it could be the most challenging day, but what gets me through it is because I know my why. I know the adversity, the challenges, the failures that I've experienced. And those were the best life learning lessons for me. I think everyone's different. I had no plan B. Like I was gonna make it, like I wasn't accepting anything less. And I felt like I knew my why and that's what got me through it.
0: Now, Does anyone have any questions or comments that they'd like to share? Any questions? I'm sorry, I can't.
2: I feel like there's a lot more to do. I feel like I'm just getting started. Certainly proud of wh- what I've accomplished thus far, and I've enjoyed the journey. But uh, you know, it's it's not just me. Like I indicated earlier, I have tremendous partners. I have a tremendous foundation. My wife is really a great partner to me. She's a wonderful wife, but also a great partner to me because there are a lot of sacrifices that have been made along the way. And to have someone that believes in you more than you believe in yourself, and to have parents like I do that have supported me because you know, I, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I tell you, like some of this rejection, like I, I kept my chin held high every single time. There, there were times that I did have great doubt and, you know, to have the support system is, is very important and, you know, I value them very much. Uh, and as far as, you know, I'm, I'm proud of where I am, but I feel like I have an obligation to mentor the lawyers that are with the firm so that they can go on for years and years and do even better than we've done thus far. So uh, to answer your question, I feel like we're just getting started. It's been fun you know, and I'm proud of where we are thus far. Thank you.
0: So I kind of, um, just hearing
2: your story, I kind of see myself and uh, uh, you or uh, whatever way around it is. Um, throughout your journey, what would you, would, the, would you say there would be something that you would want to
0: change or Do you wish you could change anything about your journey up to this point?
2: That's a great question. And the answer is my journey is my journey. I own it, right? And like I said, the adversity, the challenges that I had to overcome to get to where I am, and even the challenges that I experience now on on, on a daily basis, it's like, you know, I may have a list of priorities and agenda set out for any given day, any given week, never goes according to plan. There's always something that derails what I'm going to do or what I plan to do for that day. And I'm fine with that. I've embraced that. And I'm very comfortable being a creative problem solver. You know, I'm very comfortable embracing what I, the, the values and the principles that I learned here. And I don't know that I would have had the level of success that I have now without the support that I have, the partners that I have and certainly not the, the adversity and challenges that I had to overcome. Like there's a reason why I have a box full of rejection notices, right? Of rejection letters from every single firm and record company. I take great pride in that. And, and, I, and I just want that to resonate with each of you because it's not, it's not an easy road in anything, in anything. You can pick any area of law, it won't be an easy road. And if it is easy, well, maybe you, you may wanna switch paths and try to challenge yourself do something great in that profession.
0: Anyone else? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Yes.
2: that's a good question because there are politics in most firms and there are more senior lawyers that aren't as welcoming to a bright eyed, ambitious young lawyer. Uh, I think, you know, like I I can go on stories and stories of people that weren't welcoming to my ambition. Uh, but the people that mattered, uh, I went a step beyond what was called for in terms of treating senior lawyers and partners as clients, but more importantly, Back in the day when I was coming up, they had these things called file rooms where they're actually physical files. I don't think anyone here from the student body <laughs> you know, can relate. After my full work day, I would go into the file room and I would pull files and examine, let's say it was LL Cool J's recording deal from 1988 with FGM records. I'd study the deal and I'd study the negotiation pattern because in those days, they had negotiated through fax machines. So you would see the, you know, what transpired in the negotiation. And one of the things, more than anything, a lawyer, a transactional music entertainment lawyer loves to do is to talk about their work. So I would study those deals, and then I would ask the, the senior partner out to lunch or the senior lawyer out to lunch, and then just ask them to relive that whole Dynamic that whole experience that whole memory, uh, that was a great learning tool for me, and it was also a way that, you know, I think accelerating my my, my growth my, my growth and from a from a practitioner standpoint.
0: Um, throughout your practice, have you ever had a specific um, collaboration or endorsement
1: that either you know an artist was pushing for that became you know difficult on your end or something that maybe one that sort of the two brands ended up aligning, whereas, you know, on paper, didn't really make a lot of sense at first.
2: I was just curious if you had any. It's a great question. Every single one, (laughs) every single one. Uh, One thing about artists, the artists that I'm fortunate enough to work with, they're so creative and so genius, right. And so in the moment, that it isn't just contained to one deal. And sometimes it could be a struggle getting through what we call the deliverables in that deal, okay? So they may be required to post four times a week. May not be our brand for them. They agreed to it when they signed the contract, but it may not be something that they're comfortable doing now. Or there may be a situation where the brand partner has done something that could reflect negatively on the artist brand, what do you do then, right? So it's really paying attention and tuning into who the client is as an individual, what's important to them, and then shaping the deal in a way where in the event they breach, which more, more than likely they will, right? And protecting them so that the contract doesn't terminate in a way that you know will, will leave them in a bad position. But in addition to that, like we spoke earlier about having like a reverse morality clause. When artists enter into deals with like Nike or big brands, uh, Gucci, you know, Prada, Christian Dior, they have these really aggressive dense provisions in the contracts called morality clauses, which allow the corporation to terminate the deal and stop paying under the deal in the event that the talent is you know, charged with a felony, a misdemeanor, or puts the brand in, in, in disrepute. So, a, a way that we've kind of addressed that is we've minimized the teeth on those contracts as it relates to our clients, but we've also provided language that, that in the event that that brand does something that puts the artist's brand in, in public disrepute, we have the ability to terminate, or there's penalties of some sort under the deal. Um, that's a very good question. Anyone else? Hi. Anything they offer. The answer is anything they offered. I took every single entertainment, copyright class. But in addition to that, Running the negotiations team here, uh, participating in the Donna Jo Morris negotiation competition, and um, just just really like even even on uh, I remember Professor Tarman, who's no longer with us, his class was one of them, one of the ones that I really enjoyed, because um, you know it was this Socratic method of teaching on full display in the class, and he would just by the end of class he would have everyone just debating and sharing their points of views. And I think just that method of teaching um, here at this law school, it really helps you to think on your feet. It really helps you to, when you're negotiating a new contract, or as I can manage, be, imagine being a litigator, think of any issues and counter arguments that you may have. I think it's just really, it teaches you how to think. The experience here at, at this law school really teaches you how to think. that's uh, that's something that I take away
0: I'm Uh, sorry I can't hear how much how much value did already being familiar
1: with entertainment stuff like growing up with eclectic music and outside of legal stuff how
2: much did that help like how often did that give you an edge like in dealing with clients ah that's a good question uh it's it's really that I'm, I'm passionate about music. I'm passionate about songwriting. I'm passionate about the arts. So whether or not like I work in this space, which is great, I can have a, a conversation with a client about various genres of music because it's, it's always been of interest to me, you know? And I, I'm also still into artist discovery. I just discovered a new artist a couple months ago and I'm like playing the music nonstop, you know? So. I feel like if you follow your passion, no matter what it may be, and law certainly provides you with a tremendous amount of opportunity. It it really teaches you how to think. You can practice in so many different disciplines, different areas of law. You can be an executive. You can be a teacher. You can be a judge. There's, There's so many outlets, but I think knowing your why will allow you to be passionate about the work because every day isn't roses, right? Every day, you're not rubbing shoulders with, you know, celebrities and going to, like, interesting events and meeting interesting people. There's some days where it's, like, really hard work, and I welcome those days. I enjoy those days, you know, so still living the dream in those moments as well.
0: Yeah. You know, I ask who the artist is that you've been listening to?
2: CK. Afrobeats. Are you listening to Afrobeats at all? The Wiz Kids is is a client, is one of my favorite artists. And uh, C.K. had a song that went viral over the pandemic. But you may be familiar with the song, but you may not know the artist. So he put out an album probably a month ago called Sad Romance. And it's like, it's an emo Afrobeats album, which I find is very interesting. You know, and the music, the melodies, it just really, it really... Uh, moves me emotionally. Look it up. <laughs> Do
0: you personally play instruments
2: or, or So how about that? I don't, and, and which, which, which is why I'm forcing my two oldest daughters to play piano. My wife and I are committed. Someone in this house <laughs> will we'll know how to play an instrument. You know? So I don't, I wish I did, uh, but I was so like just caught up in sports I just, I should blame my parents now. This is when I should come in. <laughs> I just, I, I never learned how to play an instrument. I, I hope one day I will find the time to learn. Uh, so, I, no, unfortunately, no. How
0: do you go about in terms of um, new media? And you mentioned creating law around new
1: media. Like mm-hmm. one day you're working and there's no podcasts. And then the next day your clients want
2: podcasts. Mm-hmm.
0: How does your firm go about? becoming leaders in that space and what kind of research goes into that?
2: So fortunately for us, we have two of the leading lawyers in podcasts. If you would ask me how to do those deals, I don't know all the people. I don't know the politics of what companies are good, what companies are bad, what are their tendencies in in terms of rights. And I certainly don't know the market. So to answer your question, you find the best lawyers to align yourself with. And fortunately for us, uh, two of our partners, Elizabeth Moody, and Bianca Brimshaw, they have been in that space for, from the beginning and they know, you know. And I think as just lawyers, just paying attention to the real world. Like today, how are people consuming music? How are young kids con- consuming music through TikTok? Okay, that's a good and a bad thing because music is now more readily available than it's ever been given the various platforms that you can consume it on. But the issue that we have with TikTok is it's only the record, it's only the song that's getting popular. There's no connection to the actual artist brand, which could be dangerous if we don't find a creative solution to connect the two. So, with, with technology, with innovation, we embrace it. You have to embrace it. The, the record company was in a bad position because they chose not to embrace downloading. It's like when I entered the record industry, that's when 360 deals came about because record companies had to find other ways to. Earn income because people weren't buying CDs. People weren't even buying downloads. At the time, they were just trying to get uh, free music. So that's changed quite a bit now. Streaming is, is uh, the predominant way how music is consumed. But I think we have to just remain vigilant in, in terms of the rights and, and embrace innovation and technology.
0: Thank you.